This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. We cannot save ourselves by saving the planet. The ecological movement, at least as we know it today, is a tool of leftist revolutionaries. That is unfortunate, because preserving the gifts that God gave us, including the natural world, is truly important. However, the biggest promoters of today's environmental movement are not interested in conserving God's gifts. In fact, the majority are atheists. They manipulate movement to gain power. They present gruesome pictures of polluted air, water, and land scarred by the wreckage of industry. They twist these images to inspire others to repeat phrases like, someone ought to do something. Then they spring their plan. That plan always includes forcing others to give up legitimate freedoms. Only such sacrifices can establish the leader's vision of some environmental utopia. The ironic side of that issue is that the proposed solutions don't solve anything. That is the topic of Mr. Edwin Benson's essay. Unreliable wind and solar energy will not save the world. About 20 years ago, an elderly neighbor related a story from his youth on a farm in Missouri during the early 30s. The family's only source of electricity was a windmill that recharged a battery. When the wind blew steadily through the day, the battery got enough power for three hours of radio and one electric light bulb. When the wind wasn't steady, he added, we got along without the light bulb. There is a kind of folksy charm about this tale. It speaks of the ability of an American farm family to overcome the isolation and inconvenience of their lives in an often hostile environment. At the same time, it also emphasizes another fact. That wind power is highly unreliable. Despite this inconvenient truth, American and European leaders and ideologues have been banging the drum for so-called renewable energy sources, especially wind and solar power. Bureaucrats and financiers have invested billions in the hope of developing wind and solar into a workable combination. Indeed, a functional replacement for so-called fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas, could be a great boon. Once perfected, mass production methods could reduce the cost of the necessary windmills and solar panels. In such a scenario, those who resist embracing wind and solar would resemble those few who still believe that the world is flat. Yet the dreams of cheap and abundant energy remain an illusion. Many Americans have placed solar panels on the roofs of their homes, but their savings are hardly astronomical. In October 2022, the financial journal Forbes estimated that putting a solar system on a home will cost an average homeowner roughly $12,000. That system is expected to last for 25 to 30 years. If the conditions remain the same throughout that period, the savings over the system's life would be between twenty-five dollars and $33,000. However, conditions rarely remain the same for a quarter century. 
The average home's power consumption has increased dramatically over that time due to computers, smart home technologies, and other new devices and appliances. Add the power that it takes to recharge an electric automobile, and energy consumption goes way up. In the meantime, the solar panel's generating ability remains steady, unless the weather report calls for a cloudy day or a foot of snow covers the panels. Those calculations don't consider the possibility that a home's entire solar system could be destroyed by fire, hurricane, tornado, earthquake, heavy winds, or golf ball-sized hail. The problems related to wind power are vastly greater. So-called wind farms make nasty neighbors. First, they are noisy. The National Center for Biotechnology Information has documented noise-related symptoms, including, quote, sleep disturbance, headaches, ear pressure, dizziness, vertigo, nausea, visual blurring, irritability, problems with concentration and memory, and panic episodes, unquote. The effect of wind farms on wildlife are more severe. The United States Geological Survey, USGS, reports, quote, A key challenge facing the wind industry is the potential for turbines to adversely affect wild animals both directly via collisions as well as indirectly due to noise pollution, habitat loss, and reduced survival or reproduction. Among the most impacted wildlife are birds and bats, which by eating destructive insects provide billions of dollars of economic benefits to the country's agricultural sector each year, unquote. That evaluation is echoed by the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, in its environmental reporting. Quote, One of the most rapidly increasing forms of clean energy can also have deadly consequences for wildlife. Wind turbines, a technology that many view as a necessary component in the fight against climate change, can kill airborne animals, leaving lasting implications throughout the food chain. Unquote. Another massive strike against using wind power is that the wind speed is not enough to be sufficiently reliable. Wade Allison is an emeritus professor of physics at Oxford. His calculations reveal just how unreliable wind power is. In his report, The Inadequacy of Wind Power, he explains, quote, If the wind drops to half speed, the power available drops by a factor of eight. Almost worse, if the wind speed doubles, the power delivered goes up eight times, and as a result, the turbine has to be turned off for its own protection. Unquote. A third issue related to both solar and wind power is storage. As in the farmer family story cited above, the generated power is stored in a battery until needed. However, batteries don't last forever. The constant process of charging and discharging them eventually causes them to fail. This causes two significant problems, replacement cost and disposal. 
According to Consumer Affairs, the battery in an electric vehicle will last between 8 and 15 years. When it fails, it costs somewhere between four and $17,000 to replace, depending on the car model. The battery in an electric vehicle operates under different conditions than one used for storing solar-generated power or that the electric company uses to store wind-generated electricity. However, there are parallels. Eventually, all will fail to work and need replacement. Disposing of old batteries is challenging. Batteries use a variety of metals and plastics. Some, but not all, of these can be recycled. However, recycling also uses energy and carries significant pollution risks. The result is that so-called clean energy is far more problematic than it appears at first glance. Despite such obstacles, the world's politicized scientists and technocrats still fly to luxury resorts to construct their so-called net-zero world. As the United Nations explains, put simply, net-zero means cutting greenhouse gas emissions to as close to zero as possible, with any remaining emissions reabsorbed from the atmosphere by oceans and forests, for instance. The science shows clearly that in order to avert the worst impacts of climate change and preserve a livable planet, global temperature increase needs to be limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Currently, the Earth is already about 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than it was in the late 1800s, and emissions continue to rise. To keep global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, as called for in the Paris Agreement, emissions need to be reduced by 45% by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050, unquote. Yet, does the science show any such thing? Does a mere degree and a half spell doom for all of humanity? No, it does not. Reliable weather records simply do not exist before roughly 1880. Thus, the technocrats have no way of knowing the impact of a warming trend beyond highly unreliable computer models. On the other hand, archaeological evidence shows that the world has been warmer than it is today. For instance, Wine vineyards existed in southeastern England during Roman times, yielding crops that would be impossible to grow there today. Likewise, there are thousand-year-old remnants of barley seeds grown in Greenland, where as of 2023, it is too cold for barley to grow. Using such evidence, Scientists can chart that there were at least two times that the temperature was warmer than it is now, once during the Roman Empire, and again during a period called the Medieval Warm Period. As Brian Fagan points out in his book, The Little Ice Age, temperatures declined starting about 1300 A.D. 
and stayed depressed until shortly before 1900. Apparently, the UN experts referred to above chose a time of abnormal cold to use as their baseline. This begs the question, does the current push for clean energy and lowering the carbon footprint have more to do with science or politics? This question should be answered before implementing the so-called world-saving fantasies at everyone's expense. In 2018, a young woman named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was elected to Congress from New York City. Almost immediately, she gained notoriety by promoting something that she called the Green New Deal. It was extreme, to say the least. However, she justified her proposal with a prediction. Within 12 years, she warned, the Earth would no longer be habitable unless her plan was implemented. It is now five years later. No one, not even she, is running around saying that we only have seven years remaining. This is a common ploy. Those raising the alarm make sure that they chose a date that is soon, but not too soon. If it's too far off, people don't take it seriously. However, if it is too soon, people will notice when conditions don't deteriorate quickly. When that happens, people begin to repudiate the so-called leaders. Mr. Benson develops this idea and a couple others in his essay, Three Reasons to Doubt the Extreme Weather Alarmists. A recent article in the Washington Post began with a deliberately frightening sentence. Quote, Extreme heat kills more people in the United States than any other weather hazard. Unquote. A few minutes of internet searching found virtually the same sentence on NBC News, which attributed it to the National Weather Service. CNN said the same thing as did the long-standing, established in 1845, interpreter of the natural and technological worlds, Scientific American. There is only one problem. It can't be true. The Washington Post should know this. Last February, they told a far different, but no less alarmist story in an article that began, Both heat and cold can kill. But cold is far more deadly. For every death linked to heat, nine are tied to cold. Unquote. In these days of climate change hysteria, we should expect this kind of alarmist rhetoric. The mainstream press, populated mainly by leftists, has been trying since the early 70s to convince the world that man-made factors are changing the weather so that humanity faces imminent extinction. All of the wizards of science claim human activities are causing minute temperature changes that will have massive effects. However, if this impact is cumulative, Shouldn't the heat-related death rate be constantly rising? However, the rate of heat-related deaths fluctuated wildly over the 20 years between 1999 and 2018 instead of reflecting a steady increase. Much of this number crunching is courtesy of David Harsani at the Liberty Dispatch. Mr. Harsani is more a skeptic than an alarmist. He cites the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, 
total figure for all weather-related deaths at around 700 Americans yearly. He also quotes the Washington Post's estimate that 62 million people were exposed to dangerously high temperatures today, meaning July 5, 2023, which was a hot day in much of the country. No doubt, those temperatures caused much discomfort and some danger, although not to the extent that the global warming alarmists assert. Mr. Harsani offers three explanations for this widespread exposure, to be discussed here from simplest to most complex. Each is an incomplete explanation, but all provide vital pieces to the puzzle. First, the population of the United States has steadily shifted to the Southwest. Any doubter can consult a map prepared by the U.S. Census Bureau showing the, quote, mean center of population of the United States, unquote. After holding in a relatively straight westward line until 1920, it began to shift to the south at a more or less steady rate. For most of those who moved south, it was a free choice. Of course, a primary attraction for many of those people was higher temperatures. Apparently, having a warmer winter more than offsets a hotter summer. While the move to the south and west has been gradual, the sharply aging U.S. population is a more dramatic reason. In June 2020, the Census Bureau released a statement summarizing the process in two sentences. Quote, the U.S. Census Bureau today released estimates showing the nation's 65 and older population has grown rapidly since 2010, driven by the aging of baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964. The 65 and older population grew by over a third during the past decade and by 3.2% from 2018 to 2019, unquote. The same report included a map showing that the areas of most significant increase tended to be in the South and the West. The most complicated of Mr. Harsani's three reasons is that other weather events have less impact than formerly. Such an argument may seem strange to modern ears. The press trumpets every major weather event as unprecedented and catastrophic. Any accurate understanding of this factor requires an examination of similar weather events over a long period. This author will use two hurricanes that hit Miami, Florida with similar force. Early on the morning of September 18, 1926, a massive hurricane hit Miami. The exact wind speed is unknown, as the storm's force destroyed all the devices that could have measured it. It was at least Category 4, 130 to 156 miles per hour. According to the National Weather Service, 372 people died, over 6,000 were injured, and $105 million in property damage occurred. According to the U.S. inflation calculator, that translates to $1.8 billion in 2023. 
Almost 66 years later, Hurricane Andrew struck Miami on August 24, 1992. Given that Miami was far bigger in 1992 than in 1926, the massive increase in damage loss, $26.5 billion, or $54.4 billion in 2023, is no surprise. However, the loss of life was far lower, estimated at less than 25. The significant decrease in loss of life is attributed to better information. In 1926, the Weather Bureau issued the first official warnings less than six hours before the storm hit, at 11 p.m. on September 17th, when most Miamians were asleep. A second factor was that the eye of the storm passed over downtown Miami around 6.30 a.m. That city's population had more than doubled since 1920. Thus, most people had probably never experienced a hurricane. They thought that the sudden calm weather caused by the eye meant that the storm was over and they left their places of shelter. Thousands were caught outside when the more destructive half of the storm hit a few minutes later. On the other hand, everyone knew that Andrew was on the way three days before it hit. Even though massive numbers turned up to purchase emergency supplies, that still provided ample time to board windows and secure a food and water supply. Unlike hurricanes and other major weather incidents, the general population takes extreme heat far less seriously. It is a common occurrence. Every adult has lived through countless hot days and views the heat as an inconvenience rather than a real danger. For most, cranking up the air conditioning and staying hydrated is enough. It is probably useless to email this article to friends who express concern over the climate. Unfortunately, the alarmists prefer the sensational answer to detailed analysis. Having paid attention to the largely phantom risk for so long, they have invested themselves in their belief that every slightly unusual weather event is a sign of climate change apocalypse. Such alarmism is immensely popular. It is born in too many environmental science classrooms and spread by too many television station meteorologists. The weather apocalypse fits into leftist narratives that blame capitalism and patriarchy for every ill and propose big government solutions. Christians, on the other hand, have yet another source of assurance. They can rest secure in the fact that, ultimately, God controls the weather and that the same God cares for all humanity. Come wind and high water, we can trust the God who created all people and desire their good. As we saw in the last essay, one of the movement's favorite tricks is to label whatever sort of weather is currently happening as extreme or record-breaking. This tactic trades on the fact that our memories of past weather are seldom accurate. So, we swelter on a hot day and complain about it. 
it becomes easy for us to believe that it has never been this hot, especially if the television tells us that. We forget that it was just as hot two or three or, or ten years ago. The environmentalists really crank up the verbiage when an unusual weather-related event actually happens. So when there are a couple more tornadoes than usual, or a really bad hurricane hits, the fact becomes a harbinger of approaching doom. The same thing happened this year in Canada. The reaction caused Mr. Benson to contemplate, are the recent Canadian wildfires accelerating the end of the world? If there were an Academy Award for pursuing leftist causes, the climate change crowd would be perennial winners of the best hyperbole statue. For years, it has proved adept at bending weather conditions to prove that the climate is a disaster waiting to happen. Throughout the summer of 2023, Canadian wildfires have dominated the news. Often, the primary concern was not the fires themselves, but the air quality of the twin wellsprings of the national news media, New York City and Washington, D.C. Certainly, wildfires generate images that provoke emotional responses. Most people grow up admiring the grandeur of lush forests. Many feel sympathy for the woodland creatures suddenly confronted with a lethal situation. The fires mindlessly consume isolated, fine, and luxurious homes that millions of congested city dwellers envy. Smoke contaminates the air, complicating life for those with respiratory problems. Listeners can trace the arc of 2023's wildfire saga in the following headlines. NBC, May 18th. Wildfires rip across Canada as heat wave smashes temperature records. NBC, June 5th. Air quality levels in parts of the U.S. plunge as Canada wildfires rage. Forbes, June 7th. New York goes Martian. Wildfire smoke engulfs the city in eerie orange haze. Associated Press, June 7th. Millions breathing hazardous air as smoke from Canadian wildfires streams south over U.S. Reuters, June 27th. Canadian wildfire emissions hit record high as smoke reaches Europe. CNN, July 15th. A new outbreak of Canadian wildfires is sending a plume of unhealthy smoke into the U.S. yet again. ABC, July 17th. Toxic smoke from Canadian wildfires could impact health of millions in the U.S. CNN, July 17th. Canadian wildfire smoke puts around 70 million U.S. residents under air quality alerts. USA Today, July 18th. U.S. air quality today. AQI maps show D.C., New York, among cities impacted by Canadian wildfire smoke. ABC. July 19th. 
Canadian wildfires hit indigenous communities hard, threatening their land and culture. NPR, July 21st. Why can't Canada just put the fires out? Reuters, July 24th. Canadian wildfires burning land at record pace. CNN, July 25th. Smoke from hundreds of Canadian wildfires blankets U.S. cities with air pollution. And finally, the New York Times, July 26th. A grim climate lesson from the Canadian wildfires. Indeed, all the nation's media outlets are trying to outdo each other. They argue that the world's future is at stake. In this frenzied world, the Wall Street Journal injected a dose of sanity. On July 31st, it published an article titled, Climate Change Hasn't Set the World on Fire. The following day, the New York Post reprinted the same article with a new headline. Climate alarmists falsely claim the world is literally on fire. The article's author, Bjorn Lomborg, wrote, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. He begins his argument in a once-common way. He states provable facts. Quote, For more than two decades, satellites have recorded fires across the planet's surface. The data are unequivocal. Since the early 2000s, when 3% of the world's land caught fire, the area burned annually has trended downward. In 2022, the last year for which there are complete data, the world hit a record low of 2.2% burned area, unquote. Then Mr. Lumborg commented on the unfortunate state of news in modern America, quote, Yet you'll struggle to find that reported anywhere, unquote. The article draws several analogies between the current fires and those that affected Australia in the summer of 2019 to 2020. Remember that Australia has summer when North Americas endure the snows of winter. Unsurprisingly, the newspapers waxed euphoric when describing the damage with headlines like Australia Burns and Apocalypse Now. Yet the actual amount of affected Australian land was relatively small, about 4%. Despite the dramatic nature of the 2019 to 2020 fires, the event represented a substantial decrease in the amount of Australian land affected by wildfires. That figure stood at about 8% during the first decade of the 21st century. The press mourned the 3 billion animals affected by the 2019 to 2020 fires. They didn't tell readers that this figure represented a substantial improvement over the 13 billion animals affected by the fires of the early 2000s. That is a 10 billion animal improvement. A group
group of self-appointed environmentalists at Earth.org states, quote, Lightning is the most common ignition source that causes the vast majority of wildfires, unquote. At first, this sounds like an agreement that natural conditions, not human activity, primarily cause wildfires. Such a conclusion is heresy to environmentalists. So Earth.org quickly added, quote, Climate change is undoubtedly the biggest trigger of extreme lightning storms, unquote. However, history provides much reason to doubt that undoubted conclusion. First, the only reliable records are relatively recent. Only in the last century and a half has the United States government kept detailed records of temperature, rainfall, wind, humidity, and similar meteorological data. Before roughly 1870, the data is spotty, anecdotal, and largely unavailable. European records aren't much better. People tended to record natural events, including fires and weathers, that they thought extreme in diaries, letters, and folklore but day-to-day records simply do not exist. Compared with the world's history, 150 years is a mere speck of time. Some historians specializing in climate speculate that at least two discernible warming trends exist, one during the Roman Empire, the other during the medieval era. Interestingly, Both were times when material life substantially improved over the colder periods that preceded and followed the warmer centuries. There was also substantial information that the worst wildfires are not recent. Earth.org lists the 15 largest wildfires in U.S. history. Six occurred during the 21st century. The most recent on their list is the 2021 Dixie Fire in California, which destroyed 463,000 acres of vegetation and buildings. The 2020 Bay Area Fire consumed almost 1 million acres. The other four are the 2018 Camp Fire, 153,336 acres, the 2017 Tubbs Fire, 36,800 acres, the 2013 Yarnell Fire, 8,000 acres, and the 2004 Alaska Fire Season, when, quote, more than 6.6 million acres were burned by 701 different fires, unquote. Such destruction is indeed unfortunate. However, most of these hardly compare with four fires all in the Midwest between 1871 and 1884. Wisconsin's 1884 Great Hinckley Fire burned about 250,000 acres in four hours. The 1881 Thumb Fire in Michigan affected one million acres. The 1871 Peshtigo Fire in Wisconsin consumed 1.2 million acres. However, the 1871 Great Michigan Fire dwarfs all of these. 
it burned at least 3,900 square miles. That area translates to 2.49 million acres. Certainly, there is an apples and oranges quality to any comparison of the 1870s and the 2010s. There are some similarities, like lightning, warm temperatures, and dry conditions. There are also conditions, for example, population density and firefighting technology, that have changed drastically. However, the environmental movement makes far more speculative comparisons regularly. They are comparing current conditions to the entire history of the world, a history about which they know very little. Basing economic and environmental policies on that infinitesimally small body of knowledge would be a terrible, perhaps disastrous, mistake. This concludes, We Cannot Save Ourselves by Saving the Planet. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.